Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. Before we get to our guests, we'd like to ask a favor. If you enjoy the sounds of our voices in your ears every week, please share that joy with a friend. We don't have to shout it from the rooftop. Just share this very episode with just one, just one of your friends or work associates. Since we don't do tons of advertising, we'd really appreciate it. We certainly would, Kurt. And word of mouth is about all we can afford on our budget fueled by passions right now. So we would really appreciate your help. Uh, all right. So next, I'd like to ask you a question, Kurt. Okay. Uh, you lived in a few different places before you graduated from high school. Do you remember hearing any differences in accents in those places that you lived in? And how did that impact you? So I grew up in the Midwest, so Wisconsin, around the Milwaukee area, a town called Cedarburg, then moved up to Minnesota and lived in Wyzetta, um, which is a really interesting word if you ever have to read it and, and pronounce it, and then uh, moved down to Iowa. So it's all Midwest. So the accents themselves weren't that different. The accents were pretty consistent. However, word usage was very different. And I remember I was in fifth grade, moved up from the Milwaukee area, moved up to Minnesota. Remember on a first week in school and I asked somebody where the bubbler was and they just looked at me with this look that was like, what are you talking about? And I said, the bubbler. And they're like, uh, and I said, drinking fountain. And then they go, the drinking fountain, you call it a bubbler. And they laughed and it was, you know, and it was down the hall, but it is a different word. And that was, it's, it's a very, um, regional I've, I've subsequently learned it's around that Milwaukee area in Southeastern, you know, Wisconsin that they call drinking fountains bubblers. And so that was, you know, one of those things that I learned. There you go. Yeah. It's actually, it's not a bad word. It's a pretty good description. It kind of bubbles um, up, I guess. I don't know. It it does. Yeah. I think that's a fair description, but it's not, it's not adopted everywhere. No, yeah, definitely not. So how about you? You moved around a lot. I did uh, after college, after high school, I should say, after high school, I did in college, but uh, it wasn't so much about accents. I noticed I was very judgmental about the way people spoke when I was, uh, after I was divorced and was dating and found myself being very judgmental about, about uh, judging prospective partners by how they spoke, by mm. the kinds of words that they used. And I was, it was sort of a, you know, a parallel to what I thought their intelligence might be, which, <laughs> you know, may or may not have actually been true, but I was making this conjecture that I thought was, you know, pretty judgmental and pretty interesting. And I, I've thought about it near sense and I don't have a lot of regrets about it, but there's certainly better ways of dealing with people's actual intelligence than judging them on the words that they use. Well, and that's exactly what we talk about in today's episode. And we're talking with a fantastic researcher of language named Katherine Kinsler. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Chicago, and her work focuses on the origins of prejudice and in-group, out-group thinking with an emphasis on understanding how language and accent Mark Social Groups. Yeah, Catherine is also the author of an excellent new book called How You Say It, which came out in July of 2021. And one of our guests, a uh, recent guest actually, Paul Bloom, called Catherine's book one of the most brilliant young psychologists of her generation. And we couldn't agree more. Okay. So with that, we'd like to invite you to sit back and relax with a curious carafe of linguistic diversity and enjoy our conversation with Katherine Kinsler. Katherine Kinsler, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. We are excited to have you. And as always, we start with a speed round, which oftentimes ends up being a long round, but we'll, we'll go with speed round for now. So Katherine, coffee or tea, which is your preference? Coffee. Mm, Although I do a, like, an, you know, there's this one cinnamon tea that is a tough competitor, but coffee <laughs> in general. <laughs> oh. what, what kind of coffee do you like? Do you, do you like cinnamon coffee? <laughs> you know, I, I, it's kind of a genius idea. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I should try it. Well, Catherine, you don't you don't know this, but but Tim has never drank coffee in his life. So mm. he has no clue. So he that, that yeah, yeah, cinnamon coffee just does not sound good. 
Tim, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know. I, just, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think it could work. <laughs> okay. Okay. Second speed round question. Would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or favorite athlete? Ooh, you know, I'm not so much into sports. Um, and so, you know, but I, but I think that musicians are, are pretty awesome. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, that's probably where I'd go. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure I could cool. learn a lot either way. <laughs> since it's so far from uh from my own expertise either way mm-hmm. of course you see it as a learning opportunity yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> i love that that's great all right Catherine. would you rather vacation on a fixed itinerary or no itinerary at all no itinerary for sure Ooh, you're a yes. person wow. after my heart there you go yes yes there we go yes <laughs> wow okay um so here's here's our last speed round question can language be both fixed and malleable at the same time it can um and i would oh. love a <laughs> great question and i would love to talk to you about you know how that happens well let's hear about it how how is it can how can it be both fixed and malleable it seems contradictory in its very nature when you say that yeah, it does. Um, and, you know, honestly, when I was when I was writing my book, trying to integrate those points in a way that made sense and wasn't too much tension for the reader was something, you know, that I thought a lot about. Um, so, you know, on the malleable piece, I'll start there. Our language shifts in all different ways. So, you know, across your lifespan, imagine you move to a new place. Um, imagine you learn a new language, right? You know, so that's that's one thing. But even just say, you know, I'm a native English speaker. I grew up speaking English. I'm speaking English right now. And, you know, imagine I moved to the UK. I'm probably going to start to, you know, pick up on some aspects of that dialect. Or, you know, you hear students, somebody who say grew up in the American South and then goes to, you university in the North, um, their language is going to change. Even moment to moment, our language can change. So if you're talking to somebody and you really like each other and you're hitting it off, you might not notice it, but a, a clever linguist could come in and just hear really subtle changes in your vowels to kind of match each other. So in that sense, our language is always changing. Um, But yet there's kind of this elephant in the room of the languages that you were exposed to as a child. And so as anybody who's taken a foreign language class, say in high school or college knows, it is tremendously difficult to learn a non-native language into adulthood. And in particular, it's really hard to master a non-native accent. And so, you know, when you open your mouth, you're often sharing something with the world, not just about who you are today, but about who the voices were who were talking to you when you were a child. Yeah, it reminds me of My Fair Lady. Right. Yes. You know, yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It, this whole Pygmalion effect. Is it possible? You know, is mm-hmm. it possible for us to really, yeah. truly, fully adopt a whole new language? Yeah. Uh, in, in adulthood, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a rhetorical question, but I, I guess also sort of a, a real question. Can adults actually really fully adopt non-native accents? Is it so- possible? So adults can still learn languages. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember. You know, I hear a lot of, say, among undergraduates, oh, I'm just not a language person. You know, I couldn't learn this. And I think often that's a lot of, you know, anxiety around language learning, that people can learn languages into adulthood and they can become really proficient speakers and engage with the whole new world and culture and, you know, all that good stuff. But for Uh, most, you know, almost all people really mastering a language to the level of what, say, a native speaker would be, say, a kid who learned it under the age, you know, in infancy or preschool, um, it's just not going to happen into Mm. adulthood. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. I know a number of people who who speak multiple languages, Mm -hmm. and some of them, um, and obviously English is their second or third or fourth language, and, and some of them, it's really hard to tell, but others, mm-hmm. it's like have been here for 30, 40 years and yeah. you like you struggle really with their accents and various different pieces. And so obviously yeah. there's an idiosyncratic mm-hmm. component of this of individual's ability. But yeah. And I think, you know, part of it, you're describing, you know, what a listener hears. But then yeah. there's also this flip side of how the person 
feels, you know? And so when you speak in different languages and there's just fascinating studies about the way that somebody can feel really different in one language or the other, sometimes Mm. they respond to, you know, problems they're given differently. Um, You know, I was just the other day talking to a colleague who said something similar. I mean, his English is, you know, perfect um, in many respects. Like he lives and works in English. He's been here his entire career. And he says, you know, even though he's been, you know, in English for the past 35 years, he still doesn't feel like he's speaking a native language. Um, And so, you know, when he switches back to Hebrew, his native language, he feels more himself. And so I also think there's this really fascinating uh, questions around who you feel like you are and when you feel like you're, you know, you're letting out that, that self to others. That's fascinating. This idea that the language component and and how that relates back to self-identity and your perceptions of Mm self-identity really kind of fascinating. Well, let's be, before we get too far into this conversation, which is we're we're going down the path for listeners, right? So you have a book, you know, how you say it and let me get the new, the new take going on here. Why we judge others by the way they talk and the cost of hidden biases. And so can you tell just um, for our listeners who may not have read the book, how would you describe the underlying premise for the book? And, and what are some of the kind of insights that people would get from reading? Thanks. So, you know, I uh, maybe I'll just start with with a little bit about kind of my path and why I wrote the book, yeah, you know, why I felt yeah. like this was a message I really wanted to communicate. Um so, you know, I'm a developmental and social psychologist, and a lot of my research looks at how kids really early in life see language as marking and dividing social groups. And so, you know, I think about language as somebody say, a social psychologist might think about gender or race, this idea of this category that people see as, um, you know, beyond the individual, something about your social group identity um, and how other people view that identity. Um, so, you know, but I think that in society more broadly, we're not always thinking about language in this way that we think about language as a way to communicate information, you know, which is of course true and a way to connect with others and perhaps as a way that differentiates our species from others. And, you know, all those things are true, but I also think they're missing this really critical nature of language, which is language and social identity. There's just tremendous, you know, language can connect people who speak in the same way, but it's also this tremendous source of social division that linguistic prejudice is um, something that is present in so many aspects of society. And I think people are just unaware of it. So, you know, I really wrote this book to talk about the psychology literature, but then also a bunch of neighboring fields, linguistics, anthropology, some economics um, that really show the ways in which we judge people based on how they speak, where this comes from in our psychologies, how we're unaware of this, and then also what we can do about it. Um, And so, you know, I kind of see two messages in the book. So one is about becoming more aware of linguistic prejudice. And then the second is about valuing linguistic diversity and bilingualism. Um, And I think that at least in the U.S., that second piece is is really lacking. You know, I I came to my own uh, awareness of this particular issue after I got divorced about 15 years ago and started and then finally resumed dating. And I noticed myself being really judgmental of uh, first dates mm. who didn't have sort of good language skills in my mm. estimation. And I was surprised at how quick I was to uh, sort of diminish them as as potential future dates because of the way that they talked. Huh. So, you know, what are good language skills? <laughs> it's so complicated. No, I mean, it's really, it's yeah. really fraught, right? And yeah. so, um, you know, so we could think about, you know, how fast or fluent you are in your speech, something like this. But, you know, there's a lot that we kind of think about based on accent in particular mm-hmm. or dialect that we're maybe not aware of in ourselves. And so, you know, sometimes people can have this sort of subjective experience of thinking like, oh, this person, you know, wasn't a good communicator. And it's so hard to know what that means. And that's why this becomes such a complicated and fraught territory because, you know, perhaps somebody really isn't a good communicator or perhaps the listener is kind of shutting down 
down and not listening. And then that can really derail a conversation. So not to accuse you for sure of, you know, <laughs> shutting down on not listening on some first dates in the past. But, you know, it is a complex space to really think about what it means to be a good communicator. Well, you bring up a really good point with this idea of of prejudice around the linguistics mm-hmm. that we use. And so are there other tendencies? And again, I'm making a broad-based assumption here, but being born and, and raised in the upper mid-Northwest or yeah. north, north central United States, and I hear a Southern accent, you know, there are certain connotations that oftentimes come with that, of, which are obviously not true, right? But they are these images of, oh, you're, you're slow, you may not be as bright. Are, are there generalizations around this or is it just individualized in, in how people interpret this and, and the prejudices that they have? Yeah, no, that's a great point. And, you know, there's a there's a huge literature on this and showing just the kind of inferences that you said. And so, you know, dating back to, I don't know, starting in the 1930s or so, there are studies of people hearing someone's voice and then asking to judge, you know, what do you think they're like? And people mm. can get, you know, you could hear somebody record this, you know, you could you could standardize it, have them record the exact same words. You can even do things like have the same bilingual speaker record the same phrase in two different languages or two different dialects. And so, you know, there you're really, this is the same individual, the same vocal tract saying semantically the same thing, right? And then people have really different ideas about what that person's like. And so they might say, you know, some of these studies were done in the 60s in Montreal, in Quebec. Um, and so, you know, there was, there was a lot of uh, language politics at the time in Quebec mm. and English speaking Canadians had a lot more wealth on average and, you know, opportunities than did French speaking Canadians. And so Canadians would listen to the same person unbeknownst to them speaking in English or French and think things like, oh, the, um, you know, the, the first one, the English speaker just, you know, sounded a lot smarter and nicer and taller than the second guy. Um, But it's the same person, right? And so, yeah. So what you see there is like people have this sense, you know, kind of as you're saying, you hear somebody and you're like, yeah, I kind of feel like I know them. I can just sort of get a sense of what they're like based on how they talk. Um, But often what that sense is based on is it's based on some broader cultural stereotypes and prejudices that you have about different groups of speakers And that, you know, really has nothing to do with the particular individual that you're listening to. So, so speech discrimination is a real thing. Yes, it is. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What, and what what are the implications, let's say from a business perspective, Mm -hmm. what, what happens when people are going to work and communicating? What what are the business implications of this? So, you know, I think there are many, um, one thing I talk about in the book is just the complexity around employment law and accent discrimination, um, um, and so, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but um, but I, I did my best. Um, and, you know, <laughs> yeah. so um, so, you know, Title seven law protects against um, discrimination based on, you know, race and gender and national origin um, and accent and communication gets really complicated. So, you know, insofar as say an employer is using accent as a proxy of national origin. So, you know, saying, oh, I don't, I don't want to hire this guy because, you know, he sounds like he's from, you know, this other country and, you know, that's not, uh, that's not what we want here. That would be a really blatant and clear form of bias. But when it's just, oh, this person's not a good communicator and communication is really important for my job. That's again, where it gets just incredibly murky. And there are studies showing that when someone is biased against a certain, you know, ethnicity or group of people, that then they might hear their voice as being, you know, less good at communicating, whereas some other interlocutor who doesn't share the same biases, you know, might think that they're a perfectly clear communicator. And so it's really complicated, you know, so that's kind of the the hiring and firing bit. But I also think just day to day, when you think about engaging with people, so much of communication is two-sided. And I think we Mm -hmm. often have, you know, like, I think we kind of have a misguided view sometimes about what it means to communicate. It's sort of like, oh, I said my thing. I did a good job. It's out there in the world, right? Like now it's on you to receive it. (laughs) 
And I yeah, just, isn't yeah, that right? right? Is yeah. It, it, uh, yeah. You just said it. That's perfect. Yeah, right? It was, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> but, but of course, that's not, right? That, exactly. That's only half the story. Yeah, so that's only half the story. And so communication is also reciprocal. And so in, you know, if you're talking to somebody who isn't a native speaker or who speaks in a different dialect from you, there can be this breakdown where sometimes it's really not about the actual ability to understand. It's more about this kind of, you know, more subjective processes that are at play that include biases and include a willingness of a listener to, you know, engage and ask follow-up questions. Do we kind of gravitate to those people who have a linguistic pattern that is similar to our own. And so it's like being raised in the Midwest. Do I tend to like those? Again, those inferences that are made. Oh, well, that's a that's a similar, you know, language pattern to the what I'm used to and 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 how I talk. So therefore I I gravitate to those 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 people. Is that how it kind of yeah. works? I think that's definitely right, though I do think there's maybe two sides to this. And this is broader than language. This is about a lot of social attitudes and prejudices, which is where you might see two things. So one is kind of this preference for like me, for familiar. And, you know, that's not always a bad thing, right? And so gravitating towards people who maybe share a common background, grew up in a similar place, of course, you know, part of that could be based on on good features of, you know, human social life as well. But of course, there's a flip side when you're really prioritizing those people who are like you. And then, you know, you're making an employment decision or, you know, a friendship decision, you're picking one person over the other. You know, the other thing that can happen, and this is true about language, it's true about race, it's true about a lot of categories, is that people sometimes prefer what is seen as high status or prestigious in their society. And so then it's not always about the way that you talk or you look, but also people and including children can absorb societal attitudes about what's seen as um, valued by society. And there, I think you see this in language, you know, all over the place that you're talking about this, you know, what people call standard American English, although of course the standard part feels like it's got this value judgment that you might not want there, right? And so that's, you know, seen as the way of speaking that people often see as being high value, whether or not they speak that way themselves. Yeah, that is that is really interesting. Kurt and I have been doing a, a project with a Japanese firm through their Switzerland office. And we've been talking to people who are working out of that Swiss office, but are Italian and German mm-hmm. and French and Swiss by birth. Mm-hmm. And they're all speaking English. Yeah. And something that it, I guess what I'm wondering is, in terms of this this sort of prejudice and this this bigotry, if you will, mm. that sort of goes along with yeah. with with language and accents, are people who are skilled in multiple languages sort of less or more tolerant and maybe less you know less resistant, less challenging, you know, with this kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean. I wish I had really clear answers to this. You know, that's my intuition. I think that particularly, you know, in your example, there's also probably these people are all communicating um, virtually, I would guess, or these a lot of, you know, Zoom calls across groups. And I think that we often forget, particularly if, you know, say you're communicating in English and it's your native language, how much harder it is to communicate in a non-native language. And I think that's probably even accentuated by the virtual format because you don't get all the supporting gestures to go along with it, right? Yeah. That there's a lot, you know, when you're speaking in a non-native language, often, you know, you're going to use other contextual cues to help um, and gestures that, you know, and it's not just your, your face and your language. And often I think that when you're on the phone, you know that you don't have all the information. It's sometimes I think when we're on video, we we feel like we should have all the information, but we actually don't. And so it can be a little bit misleading in that way. Yeah. Well, so is there an inherent value in, in multilingual education, yeah. I guess? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I think there absolutely is. And so some of my studies with 
young kids show this advantage in perspective taking when kids are exposed to multiple languages. So, you know, when you think about the life of a monolingual kid versus a kid who's in a multilingual environment, they just have really different challenges in some ways. So that multilingual kid is, you know, thinking about things like who speaks what to whom, who understands what language, where do we speak this language and where do we speak that language, right? So it's just kind of this massive practice all the time in linguistic perspective taking, and they're incredibly good at it. So a bilingual kid, you know, by the age of two or so is going to instantly figure out which language you are when they meet you and then, you know, respond accordingly. Um, So they're really good at that. And I think that that can then play out and kind of bleed into perspective taking more generally, right? Like thinking about somebody else's knowledge states and what they know and don't know and their perspective. And so, you know, I think that there's an advantage there. So then going into your adulthood example, you know, I've only done studies myself on this topic with kids and not with adults. But when you think about adults, you have the perspective of speaking multiple languages. You probably have the perspective of knowing how hard it is to speak a language that you didn't learn as a child. And so in that case, I think that you're more likely to be a little bit more resilient in a conversation and to, you know, engage with somebody and to ask follow-up questions. And so, yeah, I think that multilingualism can be such a positive thing for kids and for society. Catherine, you talked about at the very beginning, you talked about you've done a lot of work with with kids and language acquisition and kind of how that, that impacts. What are some of the, besides kind of this multilingual education being a positive thing for, for mm-hmm. kids, what are some other insights that you can kind of highlight that are important as we think about language and and children? Sure. So one, you know, one study I think showed how much kids are attending to people's language and how it can guide their early learning, even if you'd never notice this as a parent. So I'll give you an example. So we took a group of 12-month-old babies Um, and we showed them two people, this was on video, but it was sort of like a little magic trick. Like the person was on video and they talked to the baby and the person either spoke in English, which was the language that the babies were hearing at home or in Spanish. And then the person on the screen ate some fruit sauce. And then we had this little magic trick where the fruit sauce seemed to kind of come out of the screen and the baby got to try it themselves. Okay. So 12 month old babies really like this study because they like to, you know, <laughs> eat uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. It was very a magic and fruit sauce. Oh, Come yeah. on. There yeah. You go. It was a, it was a popular event for the, for the 12 month old babies. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, we had that English speaker and then that Spanish speaker each eat two different foods and they handed it to the baby. And the babies were totally willing to try both foods. So it's not like they, um, you know, that they're saying, oh, this is a, this is a French sauce or sorry, a Spanish (laughs) sauce. I believe Spanish was the language. And I don't, I don't think it matters that it's Spanish. Say it could have been any language they were unfamiliar with, but okay. So this one's a Spanish sauce. It's not like they're like that. I'm not going to eat it. So then what we did next was we just gave babies a choice between the two sauces that they just sampled. And they were kind of, you know, spaced equidistant. So the baby had to reach one way or another. And so what we found was babies just tried these two different sauces and they were different colors and in different bowls. So they were recognizable again. Um, And then babies would tend to reach for that English sauce the second time. And so I think it's this example of how as a parent, you would just never know that this kind of cognition is going on, right? You'd see your kid just interacting with people and, you know, eating stuff that's given to them, but they've got this cultural learning that's happening underneath the hood where they're figuring out, you know, what do we eat around here, right? Like who's somebody who's like me? What are they showing me what they eat? Um, And so I think it's this really tremendous learning that's happening very early in life where they're thinking about language as having this social relevance. So are are babies bigoted them as well? No, and it's a great, you know, honestly, it's a great question and I don't think they are. So, you know, when I think about the developmental trajectory, I think that babies start 
out with an inclination to see language as providing social meaning. And so, you know, in other studies, I show that, you know, even young kids think about, say, two people who speak English as being more alike each other than two people who speak you know, one person who speaks English and one person who speaks French or Spanish. So they're seeing language as providing this, you know, categorical social meaning early in life. Um, Where I think prejudices start to happen is when society gets involved, that society starts to see certain shows, certain ways of speaking as being better than others or preferred or hide status, you know, back to your question about what if, you know, you hear somebody Um, with, you know, a different accent or dialect from what you grew up speaking. And then I think that that's where there's a lot of societal prejudice that's out there and kids are absolutely learning that. Catherine, is there anything that we can do, right? Because a lot of this, it seems, is happening at a subconscious level. We're making these assumptions. It's like any kind of implicit Mm -hmm. bias that we have. But what what can we do? Can can we as adults do Mm -hmm. anything? And particularly for parents who are out there, what can we do for our kids to make sure that hey, we may not be as good at this, but let's make sure our kids are get better at this. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And I honestly think that starting and having conversations like this, I hope, you know, raises some awareness. So just to give an anecdote. So, you know, I have a a psychology lab where kids come into the lab and play games and answer questions. Right now they do so virtually on Zoom um, because we're actually not bringing (laughs) them in person right now. Um, But it actually, you know, it works. Um, But, you know, back to the old days where the kids would come in in the lab and, you know, imagine a child who, say a five or six-year-old kid who would see a bunch of faces and they're asked who they like more, who they want to play with and say it's a white child who picks out all the white faces as somebody they like more. And we start to see evidence of race-based preferences emerging, you know, by around preschool. So this would not be uncommon. But for parents watching this, it's really upsetting. And, you know, it it should be, right? It it does uh, suggest, you know, a problem in society that their kids and their kids are absorbing these attitudes and they're not aware of that. And so, you know, they get really, really uncomfortable. Now, I'll contrast that with a case where a child, you know, a kid the same age who speaks in English um, and they pick out all the native or, you know, local accented American English speakers as their friends over people who are speaking in a different accent. And there, the mood in the room, it's just completely different. It's relaxed. It's not a big deal for the parent. Um, Sometimes it's even a positive thing. It's sort of like, oh, my kid's really good at learning languages. You know, look at that. Um, And so, yeah. So I think we're just really unaware. Um, I think even as adults, you know, there's a lot of important research around people's uh, adults. Uh, prejudices around African-American English, sometimes called African-American vernacular English, which is a dialect of English that um, is, you know, a language just like any other. And sometimes people have these attitudes like, oh, that's, you know, less good English or that's, you know, grammatically incorrect English. And that's not true. It's just as grammatically correct within its own dialect, with, you know, within the dialect as any language is grammatically correct within its own dialect. Um, And so I think even among adults, like really progressive adults who think that they're, you know, really trying to fight against racism, they then realize in themselves, oh, wait, like I do have this prejudice against language. And, you know, it's probably about racial prejudice, too. Um, And so I think that there's ways in which we can become more self-aware and we're just we're just not even thinking about language in that way because it's so pervasive. Yeah. That's yeah. fascinating when you think about that because I can put myself in that same situation. I try to be as progressive and open mm-hmm. and different things. But to that point, it's like you make those generalizations when you hear somebody talking in a way that you go, oh, yeah, that's not as good of English. And therefore, as, as Tim mentioned earlier, it's, you know, you, you dismiss that date, you dismiss that person from those things. And so even just becoming aware, I think, can be. Uh, at least for me, I'm realizing myself, I'm going, oh, I got to gotta check myself on those things. I got to make sure that I'm not just arbitrarily dismissing that person because of the way that they're speaking and may, make sure that I'm really fully looking and understanding what they're trying to say and 
and making a judgment based upon that as opposed to the how they how they talk as opposed to what they're saying. So Yeah, really well said. And I think that's, you know, an important thing for people to reflect on. I'd like to go back to a paper that you wrote in 2007 with Elizabeth Spelka. And just you asked a question in that paper that I thought it was called core knowledge. But you said, to what degree can human beings determine our fates and choose our futures? With enough cognitive work, can any person develop her mathematical talents and control her aggression? So it's 2021. We're, we're 14 years later here. Um, what, what do you think about the answer to that question these days? Wow, that's a that's a tough question that I don't. <laughs> I don't you just threw you know, that out of the blue. Yeah. I, mean, I, I just thought it was such a fantastic question to ask, and I thought, no, you you know, you've had all this time to you've yeah. got more research, uh-huh. you've, you've more time in the pool, and it's like, yeah. do you have? And and by the way, you don't. This isn't a gotcha show. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. So Liz Felky, um was my graduate advisor, and she's you know really brilliant and asks really hard questions all the time. So this is, you know, bringing me back a little bit to some, you know, to a PhD defense zone feeling oh. where, where, you know, I haven't been in some time. You're not getting um, hives or anything, are you? Yeah, no, I'm okay, but, you know. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think so much of human cognition, we learn more and more. And particularly when you think about, you know, our developmental or evolutionary instincts for one thing over another, that there are a lot of those, right? That we're not, you know, we're not born these, you know, total blank slates able to learn anything in the world, right? We have a lot of predispositions for learning some kinds of things over others. And so, you know, I think that I I think that at the time, I probably would have said that, you know, you have these intuitions coming in, but that there's, we don't have to listen, you know, we're, we don't have to do exactly what our evolutionary ancestors did, right? That we can choose knowledge and enlightenment and learning and create, you know, all these new structures of knowledge. So that's probably what I would have said then. What I would probably say now is that so much depends on the societies around us. And so it's not just up to us, you know, it's about the broader structure of society too. So, you know, take the case of kids learning prejudice. Historically in the U.S., a lot of white parents have had this sort of colorblind approach to parenting, you know, thinking that I don't want to be racist, so I don't want to talk about race, and then my kid won't be racist. But Unfortunately, the kids live in a society where race is something that a lot of adults have attitudes about and where race is not randomly distributed across society. They might notice that, you know, who on average has more wealth or more access to resources. um, And then they're picking up on that, this, you know, these correlations that exist in society between different groups and different amounts of wealth or privilege. And so you don't have the total ability to be anything you want to be or for your child to have any attitudes you want them to have because they also are embedded in a society that is teaching them things. Yeah. It brings me back to, we we had a conversation with Christina Bicchieri and one of the things that she talked about is that we were asking about social norms and she goes, you know, yeah, they, they're very powerful. They, they, they drive us. But you also have to understand that we are part of those social norms. Yeah. And so we're creating those social norms, particularly for the reference groups around us. And what you just said, I think really resonates with that, that saying, yeah, we have, we can only do so much because we have this culture and the society yeah. around us. But there's there's also a hopeful piece, at least from my mm-hmm. perspective, is saying that, but if we understand that, then we can do something because we're part of that culture. We're yes. part of that social network. And so if we can start making that change now, it, it, it and again, it's not easy. It's not so something, oh, I mm-hmm. can just work with my kids. No, mm-hmm. you have to be thinking about it from a larger perspective. So I think that's a fascinating yeah. piece of this. So Thanks. Yeah. But yeah, I absolutely agree that, you know, you can think locally about your kid and do your best, but it would require a broader structural shift to really make a huge dent for, you know, most kids. Yeah. 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. thinking about your kids, uh, we need to talk a little bit about what's on your playlist right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's uh, what? What are you listening to these days? Did, or did you have a? Did you sort of start a pandemic playlist? Did you go through anything like that, or was it always just about children? Yeah. So you know, it's a lot about children right now. I'll admit. Um, so the playlist that is um, that is most in our lives currently. Um, so I have a seven and a half year old and an almost two year old. And so there's a musician in Chicago, Mr. Dave. I, I don't know his full name, but I do know he goes by Mr. Dave. And so, you know, when my daughter was a baby seven years ago, we would go to this music class and we have a CD from it. And we don't have a CD player, but we do in our car. And so this CD has been lodged in our car since then. Um, so, <laughs> you know. <laughs> seven so, years of Mr. Oh, Dave. Huh? Yeah. So we yeah. got a little respite. So, you know, there was a break probably, you know, from age, I don't know, my the big one was a baby up until toddler years. There was a lot of Mr. Dave. And then we took a little break. But now with the little one, I don't know, he was screaming in the car sometimes. So we bring out Mr. Dave. Um, so he's just obsessed <laughs> with it, you know, and it's constantly like he wants to go in the car as much as possible to hear Mr. Dave from the car. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah. So... Wow. Yeah, I, I want to ask about music, and then as as we talked about, even just different languages. So I don't know if you've have you done any research and just having kids listen to music from different different cultures, different languages, different again dialects. Is that any yeah. any research that shows that, or is that an uh, area that you don't you haven't hasn't been studied yet? Yeah. So, you know, there's actually some studies by my my former advisor, Liz Spelke, and some other colleagues um, where they find that pretty early in life, babies can hear the rhythmic differences between languages and so different, sorry, between um, different musical structures. And so, you know, there are so I don't know, I'm not a music expert, but there are rhythmic differences between, say, you know, Western music. And I think they've maybe used music in the Balkans as a comparison case, but I'm not sure exactly what the rhythmic structure difference, but there is some difference. And, you know, at some point babies can detect it. And so, you know, I think that's pretty interesting that as they're getting kind of tuned up on their native language, so over the course of the first year of life, babies get better at discriminating sounds in the language that they're hearing. And they actually start out being really good at being able to hear different, you know, slight phonemic differences in other languages. And then that kind of falls off. So this ability to hear, you know, to be a good listener in some language that you're not being exposed to declines. And so, you know, I think something is likely similar is happening with music where you're kind of getting tuned up on these familiar musical rhythms. And then when you hear something different, um, it becomes, you know, something that you're you're just not used to listening to. That I think that's just fantastic. And I just want to say thank you so much for being a guest on Behavioral Groups today, Catherine. This has really been a, a treasure and treat for us, really. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much. It was uh, really exciting to speak with you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Catherine, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our accented brains. We are. That's a great That's a great line because we all are. We all have accents. Everybody's got a little bit of a different accent from a brain perspective. That's a great metaphor, Kurt. Well, and if you think about an accented brain and the idea that we all have slightly different accents on our brains and that then colors the world that we see or hear in this instance. I think it's really fascinating how what Catherine was talking about is this idea that prejudice isn't just about black and white faces. It's not about just the color of our skin or our our origin of nationality, that it actually is about our approach to language as well. I thought that, because you don't think about that. And that became a really interesting point for me that I'm going, wow, how judgmental am I in these kinds of situations? It's an important reminder that uh, racism takes forms that are much more subtle than just, oh, you're bad. 
you know, oh, you don't look like me. I don't want to play with you. You don't look like me. You're a bad person. You know, uh, in, in these grotesque cartoon like ideas of what racism ought to, you know, is, it's actually manifests itself in much more simple and subtle ways. And Catherine's work really reminds me of that and brings it to the forefront. I loved the conversation when we talked to her about the work with parents. I mean, the idea of of children, right? And they're going through and they're looking at different colored faces and they choose to play with the kids who look like them and parents get all upset over that. Oh my God. Oh my God. No, I'm raising a a racist kid. I don't want to do that. But when the same thing happened about, uh, you know, language and the sound of people's voices, there was like, oh yeah, of course they're going to pick the person who sounds like them and different pieces. And there wasn't that same reaction. Yeah. And yet, that is another way of separating out, you know, the the world into in-group and out-group. And when we think about those separations, it's it's a natural human tendency, but sometimes it can have some negative consequences. And that is the key piece here is we need to be aware of all of this. Not that we can necessarily do anything about it, but the awareness in and of itself so that we can hopefully notice it when it happens within ourselves or notice it when it happens with our kids and bring it to the forefront so that it isn't something that's happening at a subconscious level and we're not even aware, but that we're bringing it to the forefront and we can hopefully then address it. And sometimes it's okay and other times it's not. Agreed. Uh, Just one last thing to say about that is that we are coding prejudice in the sounds of the language just as much as we're doing in the color of a face. Mm. And uh, we just need to be reminded of that. I also liked uh, the way uh, she talked about uh, language is so adaptive and that we adapt uh, based on environment. You know, this is sort of a, in general, it's kind of a context matters, you know, sort of a story. And and I think that it's really important for us to kind of keep that in mind, right? Like like you brought it like you brought up at the very beginning, our accent flavored brains. Everybody's got an accent. Everybody has no, an accent. There's no pure. There's there, what, what's a pure language? <laughs> there's no pure language. The, the pure language is the way that I speak the language. Right. Yeah, that's right. how it works. Of course. Right? No, of but course. The, the idea that we adapt the the accent. So you know, if you or I move to London, give us a few years over there, and we're going to be using. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about the boot and we're going to talk about I'll set up a I'll set up uh, something in your diary, you know, uh, yeah, like yes, a schedule yeah. and yeah. all of those. Grab a trolley when we go to the, the store. Exactly. And, all of our yeah. all of our English friends will probably yell and correct us on, on what we're saying right yeah. now. But but yes, I mean, that's that's true. And so this is the part that really I find interesting from this prejudice part, because we're adaptable in yeah, our language yeah. and accent, and yet we discriminate on that same factor. Yes. So if I move to uh, Georgia and all of a sudden my accent, I started to slow my talk down and to, mm-hmm. to extenuate the things as opposed to being my Minnesota accent and I extend my O's and then going out on that boat and having some toast. Right, it's this. Uh, you, you did that so well. <laughs> Those are the two accents I can do my own, and you know the in Atlanta. In Atlanta. <laughs> but the the idea then that we would discriminate and we would think, oh, one is you know has a certain quality about it, and another one doesn't. When it's interchangeable, and we know that, we know that if I moved down there, I would I would adapt. Yep, you would. And and if somebody moved up here, they would adapt. So that's the interesting piece for me. I always like the running joke, though, that if uh, if five people from the U.S. move to uh, London, that within a couple of months, they all start sounding like Londoners. If uh, five people from London move to a, a, a city in the U.S., within a couple of months, everybody in the that city in the U.S. is sounding like a Londoner. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I, I think in this contact matters question, it also brings up this, this question about DNA, that if we are like, there is something that's sort of basically coded into our operating system that helps us with language. And yet how we express the language ends up being highly context dependent. Mm. So let's acknowledge that and sort of give into it and, and not be so 
prejudicial about about language and accents. That, yeah. That's kind of my take. So you shouldn't discriminate your dates based on um, on, on how they talk. Well, I, I should not have. I, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm happily married, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, it, it was wrong. It, but, I think that I, I believe that you know, if I were to be judgmental about me, it was it was the wrong thing to do. But, but this gets into so should I be teaching my children when they come home and they're saying like you know like um, I was out today and like the friends and the, they're using language in a way that is probably common with their friends. That's how they talk. Mm -hmm. And I correct my kids on that. Am I being judgmental in that? Because I understand what that means for long-term job prospects, how people view them in the larger society in various different pieces. You know, that's a, that's a question. I would say, yes, you are. And, but that's not a, Yes is necessarily a bad thing. You're giving them the best advice that you can give them. Maybe the best advice came from Catherine when she said that those people who are more flexible with language mm. tend to be more open and less divisive on lots of issues. Yeah. So, so maybe maybe that's a part of it as well. Yeah, that I think is really an important insight from her. So the more flexible we are, the better that we can do. So, so Tim, what can we do about this? How can we become more flexible or how can we teach our kids to be more flexible? Well, we, we should talk about things. We should talk about race and our differences. And by the way, we shouldn't only talk about our differences. Let's emphasize all the similarities that we have, right? Let's let's focus on the similarities, but let's not bury the fact that, that we're different. And, and with our children, one of the things we can do is we can uh, open them up to hearing lots of different voices, lots of different accents. So mm. music is a wonderful way of doing this, bringing in music from different cultures, different words, different languages, so that they're hearing Spanish music and French music and Chinese music and a variety of others, so that they're hearing that differences at a young age, so that it becomes kind of imprinted upon their brain. So that's good. What else can we do? Uh, Let's invest in structural change, right? This, This could be not just within your family, but this could be within your company or within your community. I think that we need to to start thinking about how things can be different. Right. And I think the the last piece that goes back to the part you talked about, the context matters, but there's a part that is ingrained in our DNA. And so we need to really be thinking about how we can overcome some of those DNA shortcomings and really yeah. what can we do, kind of nudges and behavioral science tools. And, and why can't we use more behavioral science in trying to overcome some of these structural biases that we have around race and other factors. And I think that's something that I know there are a lot of really good researchers out there working on, but man, I think the world could use more of that. Okay. So with that, Groovers, it is time to wrap up this episode with a couple of closing comments. First, Catherine's warning that our environment is so strong, that context matters so much, that we need to really be aware of our baked-in biases. Yeah. And second, language is an adaptive thing. We can use it in ways to communicate that go well beyond just information. We can persuade and we can educate. So let's just be intentional about it. And lastly, this is about applying these ideas to your own life. Think about ways that you interact with people you know who are not native in your language. Cut them some slack as they try to communicate in a language that you've been speaking since you were born. A little bit of grace, as our friend Brad Shuck says, would go a long, long way. Yeah, so we hope that you enjoyed our conversation with Katherine Kinsler and that some of these things that she had to say will help you this week as you go out and find your groove. 